You're listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. And today we're here talking with the director of the Center for the New Energy Economy, Governor Bill Ritter. He was the 41st governor of the state of Colorado. And he's coming out with a new book. The book is going to be released uh, shortly, I think in about a month. And it's called Powering Forward. Governor Ritter, uh, welcome to the Energy Policy Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Jeff. Um, it is. It's Powering Forward. The subtitle might tell you a little bit more about it. It says what everyone should know about America's energy revolution. It's really about that, about what's happening in the United States of America and about the revolution that is happening and that you know needs to continue to happen and happen in a pretty accelerated fashion. How much of that revolution is political? How much of it is technological? I think there's a mix. And my experience, obviously, in the political circle is that um, that really we have a variety of things that are necessary in order for us to get to the place that I would call the successful energy revolution in America. So you have to have public policy as a part of that. We need ongoing research and development, the development of technologies that can be part of that energy revolution. And we need to finance those technologies. We need to finance the innovation. We need to finance the um, the groups that uh, are doing the innovation so that they can get sort of through that place that they call Death Valley to where we capitalize the energy revolution in an adequate way. So I think about it sort of as a triangle of policy, technology, and finance. And the policy part of it is absolutely political. So why, why did you feel like this was an important book to write at this time? It's interesting. We spend a lot of time in the book discussing the issues relating to climate change um, and other environmental issues as well. One of the chapters I like best is lessons from the biosphere. But we frame so much of this in terms of what's happening with respect to uh, global climate change. And uh, that's been debated in pretty serious ways in the United States. And in the politicization of that, uh, people kind of going into their own corners and coming out boxing about climate change has really stymied our progress in having the right kind of energy revolution. We see that progress happening in different places, but that stymied it. And so I, so I wrote it uh, now because I think we are experiencing climate change even as we speak, and the need to do something um, is bigger than it even was when I became governor in 2007. The evidence of it is clearer to me, and I think to uh, most people in the world, most scientists or climate sci scientists see that. So I wrote it now because I want Americans to understand there are things that are happening. There are naysayers out there who are pushing back against change in our energy systems. They've been wrong about a lot of things so far, and that story has not been told very well. So you mentioned the political polarization. Is there a, is there a way out of that? Is there a solution to that problem? I think there are a few different ways to think about the solution. One is a groundswell of support from the American people about climate change policy, but more specifically about clean energy policy. The second part of that is to try and take the politics out of it, to find a way to get um, agreement among political parties, and particularly 
inside the Republican Party and inside the Democratic Party. There are naysayers inside the Democratic Party. We point that out in the book. Oftentimes they come from states where the economies have been built on fossil fuel economies. Uh, but there's also a big disagreement uh, among Republicans. And a lot of folks, particularly if you look at the presidential candidates from the Republican Party right now, you can see that there's not a lot of endorsement of these kinds of ideas of promoting America as this place where we can pursue a clean energy economy and do it in a fashion that's not political. So um, I have great hope that the American people are coming around to understand the wisdom in doing this, that many people inside the Republican Party, and, and I look to Republican governors, uh, other Republican local leaders as people who are pretty close to the ground, understand better what their constituents are thinking and aren't so, um, I think, so, so taken in by the money in politics that they can't do any, that they can't do anything about this big problem. Governor, uh, many people in energy have been critical of the U.S. and not having a vision around energy, or at least not an articulate vision around energy. And what's your take on that? Does this book articulate a vision? Uh, how, what can we do to sort of uh, get America on path to to a, a concrete vision for the future? So I actually have uh, an entire chapter sort of dedicated to thinking about a new vision, but also a chapter dedicated to changing the conversation because I think the two go hand in hand. We have to have a different energy vision. And, you know, I was fortunate to be among a small group of people in 2013 who got to speak with the President of the United States about his last term and his own clean energy vision. And what I said is everything should be built around uh, this, this idea that we need to understand the our energy system's impact on the environment, our impact on the atmosphere, and, and really think about how we get to a place where we decarbonize the American energy system in order to address, as a global leader, address uh, the issue of climate change. So there is that vision. The vision um, looks to energy systems and decarbonization. We talk about a lot of things that haven't gotten much much of a conversation generated in Washington, D.C., but we also talk about things that the states are doing, renewable energy standards, energy efficiency policies, a variety of transportation and transportation fuel policies that can be a very big part of the conversation. For people who think, well, we're against fossil fuels, we actually have a chapter on the future of fossil fuels, but then another chapter on the future of natural gas. And um, you really need to separate natural gas out from this larger conversation about the future of fossil fuels because I and many of the people uh, who are part of this conversation believe that natural gas is a part of this transition. It is a part of this energy revolution. I made that a part of my own thinking when I was the governor of Colorado, and I think it's here and it's here for a time. And how much time is going to be an open question as we look at the impact that even natural gas production could have on the atmosphere but um, an energy vision says we produce energy systems at a low cost for American consumers. We do it in a way that uses technology, even disruptive technology that's still on the horizon, but we also do it in a way that respects um, impact on the environment and the atmosphere. I think it's fair to say some people would call you an optimist. And I, I think for the average American opening a newspaper and reading about climate change, there's a lot of pessimism, uh, there's denial, it, there's sort of a, a dark cloud of doubt around it. Uh, 
But is there is there good news here? I think there's a lot of good news. First of all, I I am optimistic about our ability as Americans to be part of this revolution to see a dramatic transition happen that addresses the issues I've talked about, uh, the environmental issues and the issues around climate change. What I am less optimistic about is that we're going to do it quickly enough. Mm-hmm. And, and so the rate of change is really mm-hmm. important in this conversation. The media loves to look at the controversy, look, look at where the swords cross, and oftentimes without really analyzing the other side. You know, we had so many naysayers when we had the new energy economy as a part, a pillar of my administration when I was governor. And these naysayers had all sorts of things they would say. It's going to be too expensive for customers. We're not going to be able to integrate 30% renewable energy into our grid. Um, You know, the technology's not there. The reliability won't be there. The affordability won't be there. And now we're, you know, this many years later, I left office five years ago, and we've seen all these successes and the media doesn't do a very good job of reporting that. We, we point out in the book, there are all these economic analysis about a, an act that we call Clean Air, Clean Jobs, and there was economic modeling, so it's gonna be very expensive. Even the utility that supported it said it was gonna be about a buck 16 for consumers. The average consumer would pay that monthly on their bill. Turns out to be only five cents a month, Clean Air, Clean Jobs, the impact. That much lower than uh, a supportive utilities economic analysis and there's been virtually no reporting of that because it's good news. Right. So you now have the benefit of this hindsight, right, of the empirical data after, the, after this policy has been passed. And, and the data really uh, doesn't prove out the naysayers. And that, that's a great example. You, you have a, a great, I think, perspective on spirituality, religion, and energy. And I think certainly Pope Francis uh, elevated that for for the world, really, with his encyclical, Laudato Si. And I wonder if you can talk about how you view those issues and whether that's explained in the book. You know, so much of the conversation about this for so long, about the clean energy revolution or transition, about climate change, about the environment, has been uh, a utilitarian case. It's been about the economics of it, some about the degradation to the environment. I think nobody has done a better job than Pope Francis of making the moral case. And the moral case is really not just about the United States of America and, and actually about, uh, it's about the global moral case that the world's poor are going to be hit worse. They're going to be hit first. Um, we may you know, get this transition done in a timely fashion where we save the first world or the developed economies, but uh, there's going to be a lot of impact visited upon the people who can least do something about it. And in my mind, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, but uh, Pope Francis doesn't just speak to Catholics in the encyclical you referenced, Jeff. Pope Francis speaks to all of the world, says this is a moral case that we have to undertake if we want to do the right thing by our fellow man uh, across the globe. You know, Pope Francis was, a, was attacked by a number of people for, that claimed he was being political in the issuing of this encyclical. Where, do you, where is that line? Is there a line between the moral and the political? Is Pope Francis being political, or is he providing that kind of moral leadership? Well, I say in the book, I've been around public policy a lot. I was in public life long before I was governor. I was the district attorney of Denver for 12 years, and it's rare that I've ever encountered a policy issue that doesn't have a moral underpinning. 
oftentimes we don't talk about it enough or speak about it, but I think Pope Francis elevated the moral imperative around clean energy and around the clean energy revolution in a way that nobody else had before. It absolutely is there. And uh, how many political questions don't have a moral underpinning? So I think, uh, again, this is a case of the naysayer saying, well, he should stay to religion. He, he's not a scientist, when in fact he is a scientist. They said this is an economic question, and he's not a person who should uh, travel into the world of economics. Uh, these things are all mixed, and mixed in a way that you cannot unravel them. This problem is a problem that has to be has to have um, an economic solution, an environmental solution, and something that is a global strategy that the United States is not only a part of but leads. So you mentioned uh, in talking about the Pope and the, the impact on the poor. Uh, you also mentioned the concern that some governors had around the economic impact of this uh, energy re revolution that you've talked about. And in the book, you talk a little bit about a just transition. What, what exactly is that? A there, just transition? there are a lot of parts to a just transition, but first and foremost, I think about the communities that have been built up around fossil fuel extraction, whether it's coal or oil or natural gas, and, and particularly where coal-fired generation is or coal production is, there's communities that can be hard hit. We have to pay particular attention to those communities, to the economic reality in those communities and find ways to try and assure that those communities still have an economic viability going forward. There's a lot governments can do with respect to economic viability for local governments or local economies. That's part of it. The second part of a just transition is to understand that consumers, uh, many of them pay their energy bill, and when they do that, there, there are opportunity costs. There are other things they may not be able to afford. If you decide to build out a clean energy economy and do it on the backs of poor people or lower middle income people, uh, there's a real cost to those folks that's an economic cost, but it's a burden because of the opportunity cost it represents. And so we need to think about consumers and about affordability for energy pricing as we go forward. Uh, both you, both of you, Tom and Jeff, know that in the governor's office, because you were both part of it, in the governor's office in Colorado, we thought about that all the time. And, and I, again, I think we've been proved right, but you have to have that as a part of your thinking in terms of this just transition. The final part of the just transition is to think about the next generations. Um, our inactivity actually will pass a burden on to our children and to our grandchildren that is not just. It's not fair. It's not fair for them. It's certainly not fair for the rest of the world's poor. And so there are a lot of parts to that, but I think we shouldn't go forward in, in building out the American energy revolution without understanding there are many faces of, of people who are going to experience negative impacts that if we put the right kinds of policies in place, can uh, we can dent that, we can mitigate that in a very serious way. You've uh, obviously you were a governor of a, of a state and, and made headway in Colorado around energy policy. And we've seen some leadership from utility commissions, uh, governors, legislatures. You talk in the book about the important role that states play. Where where is the leadership for the energy revolution? Is it best uh, positioned at the state level? Is it at the federal level? Is it all of the above? Is it international? So in an ideal world, it would be all of the above. It would be, and we saw in Paris, 196 countries come together on an accord that says these are the things necessary for us to 
cap uh, global warming at 2 degrees Celsius. There's an ambition coalition that said that should really be 1.5 degrees. So that was international. On a national basis, as I've referenced before, Congress has been largely missing from this conversation. But if Congress decided to act in a meaningful way and just pricing carbon, saying that if, if it's coming out of the smokestack, we're going to evaluate what the social cost of that is and we're going to have a full accounting of that, that'd be very meaningful. To the extent they don't do that, then it really defaults to state and local governments to do what governments can do at that level. And we've seen so many success stories in states. Governors have different reasons for acting. There are some who don't necessarily embrace climate change as the reason to act, but who see economic opportunity as a part of this, and, and they're actually acting on it in a variety of Republican governors. We've also seen an interesting mix of people. I, I, I look to the Georgia Tea Party as an example of a group of people inside a state, not the governor, not a local community, but an organization of activists who kind of looked at, at solar, for instance, and said there are all sorts of reasons why we as Tea Party activists should support the build-out of solar and support policies that will accelerate the build-out of it. So there is bipartisan support that we don't hear about very often. I think we, we think about bipartisan support and, again, look at Congress. And we don't take into account things that are happening in local government, but certainly things happening at the state level. We at the Center for New Energy Economy work with a variety of states and, and have over the past five years where Republican governors have done very meaningful things. Governor Snyder in Michigan, apart from the clean power plan that the EPA put in place, had already announced his own clean energy plan. It's going to be a mix of renewables and natural gas. Governor Sandoval in Nevada, it was really clear that they're probably not going to build another coal plant. Governor Martinez in New Mexico, uh, same kind of thing. Governor Brownback, a very conservative guy in the state of Kansas, has been part of that effort in that state to not unwind the renewable portfolio standard. And so there are, there are places where you can look to Republicans who understand either the climate side of it, the environmental side of it, or the economic opportunity side of it. And for whatever reason, they've come to the party. And I think utilizing them is important. Then you put in on top of that people like George Schultz, who I think served three different presidents as a secretary for one of the departments at the federal level. Hank Paulson, a former secretary of the Treasury. Uh, four different EPA administrators who served under Republican presidents, all of whom were saying this energy transition must happen. Climate change is real. We must act on it. The risks are too great if we don't. Powering Forward is uh, going to be released in... March. March. March 15th, it'll be available uh, in bookstores. We actually had a release date of March 1st, but you'll be interested to know uh, because we want it printed on recycled paper, it took us two extra weeks. <laughs> so it's an important priority. And Amazon.com, right? So you can find it online, Amazon.com, selling for, I think, $17.95, uh, powering forward what everyone needs to know about America's energy revolution. Governor Ritter, thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. You've been listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. We've been talking with Governor Bill Ritter, the author of the book Powering Forward. Thanks.